Let's let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. We come this morning to thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, and your mercy. Father, as we come to share good news this morning in so many instances, Lord, we can only thank you. We can only worship you. We can only give you all the praise and honor because, God, your word remains. We are so privileged to be able to share the good news of the gospel. But, God, on top of that, we want to say thank you for what you are doing for us here with Presence Culture, for the words that you have given us that is surely coming to fulfillment in this season, Lord. We are so excited, and Lord, we, we draw a line in the sand. Lord, we call this thing what you said it to be. You said it is to build a culture around my presence. And so we pray, Father, that you will fill this place Fill this church, fill this ministry with your presence, Lord. That you will pour out your spirit on all flesh, not just in this local ministry, but in every other local ministry, Lord. That the earth will be filled with the glory of God. Lord, when I bring a message this morning, I feel so ill-equipped to share the depths of it, Lord. But I pray that you will anoint my voice, that you will anoint my lips, that the words that I speak will lead people closer to you, that it will, that it will draw all men unto you, that it will stir a hunger and a passion in their hearts, Lord, to go read the scriptures for themselves and find you in it. Because that is why we need to read the scriptures, not to know about you, but to know you and to be known by you. I pray that you will come and search the depths of our hearts, that you will search the depths of our innermost being, and that you, Holy Spirit, will come and convict us. That is my prayer this morning, and I pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thanks, Les. Um, thanks for that um, fiery introduction. And um, you're certainly right. I, I really hope that this word will um, bring a division. Um, but... I think, um, you know, I prayed about this and, and I'm reading a, a scripture particularly um, and I'm, I'm spending some time in it. But I think it would be a great injustice if I were to preach on, on the scripture. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm not going to preach on it. I'm going to preach on it. Uh, I'm going to bring a word on it this morning. But I'm, uh, what I want to do is I want to lay a foundation. I want to give you the context today. So hopefully we won't be too long. But then I want to ask you to go and read it for yourselves. I want you to go spend some time in it based on the context that I'll give you today. Um, because I think if you don't read this for yourself, and if I just preach on it, like I said, I think that I will do you a great injustice. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you my perspective on it instead of you finding your perspective. Um, I said yesterday that the message that I want to preach about uh, is um, the greatest preacher, the greatest sermon. That can be my title. The greatest preacher, the greatest sermon ever preached. Now, like I said, all of us have listened to great sermons. Um, I, I know there are amazing sermons. And what do we do is we take a notebook and a pen. And, and when somebody preaches this amazing message, we make all these notes. Uh, and I think that's great. And that's awesome. Um, but then when we read scripture, we tend to take pieces of scripture and we meditate on that instead of seeing the context of what was said. Um, and especially when it comes to this particular sermon that I want to speak about. Now, I know that all of us have heard about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' very first sermon that he preached. Um, it is 
honestly the greatest sermon ever preached. I'm, I'm spending some time in it uh, and God is blowing my mind as to what he's saying in it. I've never read, I've read it a million times, but I've never read it with uh, studying the historical context, studying what he was saying uh, and, and looking at it in its totality. I mean, we don't put on a, a sermon from from whoever it is that we're listening listening to, whether it's uh, Stephen Furtick or or T.D. Jakes or uh, it doesn't Bill Johnson. It, it doesn't really matter who we listen to, but we don't listen to ten minutes of their message and then switch it off. And then uh, you know, a week later, we we kind of skip the middle part and we listen to the last ten minutes of the message and think that we get the totality of what is being said. But when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we tend to take certain portions of it and read that and spend some time of that instead of reading the sermon as a whole. And I think that when we read it as a whole and we look at it as one sermon, uh, it makes so much more sense. Uh, it is mind-blowingly good, um, you know, how, how good the sermon is. Anyway, so today I want to focus on the context. Uh, I think, like I said, it's so important to lay a foundation uh, that we can build upon um, as the weeks progress. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll preach this as a series. And it might not follow week on week, um, but every time that I that do get a chance to share with you, I'll share a next piece. I'm still studying this out for myself. Uh, I, I sat uh, literally crying before the Lord as to what he is saying in this, um, in this scripture. And God is showing so much of the stuff that's going on in my heart. And the stuff that I need to work on and the stuff that I need to surrender to him. Uh, and I really hope and it is my prayer that that same division will happen for you today. That is that division between flesh uh, and spirit, between marrow and bone um, that Les was speaking about. Um, so, so that is my prayer is that the context will stir that hunger so that that division can take place. Now, when we talk about context, um, you know, if you study theology, they'll tell you one of the greatest or the most important things in terms of hermeneutics is context, context, and context. Uh, if you read the Bible, you have to read it within context. Without context, it's easily to build your own theology. It's easy to build whatever it is that you want to say. I mean, we can take um, a scripture like, uh, you know, seek for his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, and we can make it a prosperity gospel. And we can make it... Um, you know, just all about you and what you can get from God. And, and I think part of this scripture, part of this sermon addresses two things. Um, Jesus comes and he addresses really as the, he addresses the motives of the hyper grace teaching. And he also addresses the motives of the prosperity gospel. Um, and he, he kind of speaks about this when you read the scripture in context. And he, he shows the weaknesses of, of both of those. And he says it's, it's more than that. Um, but in order to understand this context, we need to go back um, years, millennia, um, hundreds, thousands of years. We need to go back and we need to go back to the Old Testament um, where Moses, uh, the greatest prophet um, from the Old Testament, was raised up. Moses uh, came into this world and there's a great contrast um, between Jesus and Moses. Now, we know that all scripture point to Jesus, right? That's what Jesus said. He said, all scripture points to me. Uh, and so the Old Testament is um, uh, almost a shadow, a type and a shadow of what is to come. It is to show what Jesus is going to bring. And we'll see that in the life of Moses. 
Now, how do the lives of Jesus and, and Moses compare with each other? Well, it's interesting that when we read it and when we think about this, is both were persecuted. I don't know if you remember, but when Moses was born, uh, Pharaoh uh, at the time, the evil ruler who is a typification of Satan, and he was this evil taskmaster which speaks of sin. So Egypt was the bondage of sin. Um, so, so, so Moses was born under this persecution. This Pharaoh, this taskmaster said that we will kill all the boys. When Jesus was born, Herod, the evil taskmaster said that we will kill all boys two years and under. So both of them were facing this persecution. Both of them had to, had to flee. Uh, maybe in a different sense, but Moses' mother, she took him, she put him in a basket and he drifted down the Nile. Now no Nile crocodile got to him, but, um, but he drifted down the Nile into Egypt. And there the princess got him and she raised him. And in the same way, Jesus fled from Bethlehem into Egypt. He fled um, to, to be saved from this persecution. And, and that is where he grew up. And, and then years later, he came back. And so as Jesus came back to Nazareth, because he will be called a Nazarene, so Moses went back to his people. So both of them fled and came back. Both of them spent time in the wilderness. Um, when, when Moses fled Egypt after he killed um, a, 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 an Egyptian because he was oppressing the Hebrew nation, Moses fled into the wilderness and there he spent 40 years in preparation. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit for 40 days into the wilderness. Both of them fasted. When Moses uh, was in the wilderness and, and before Moses went back, he fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights before he received the law. Um, Jesus fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. And then when, when Moses gave the law, he went up to Mount Sinai where God gave the law, where he gave his divine instruction. And we will see in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus went up a mountainside when he preached the sermon. And so we see this great contrast between the two of them. There's, there's still um, a lot of other things that we can point out. But I think in summary, we can clearly see that Moses' life is a shadow and a typification of what Jesus was about to do uh, from a historical perspective. I always laugh when people kind of say that, um, you know, preachers will preach and they, they'll say that they're Moses and they're called to lead people. And yes, people are called to lead, but no, you are not Moses. Moses is a type and shadow of Jesus Christ because all scripture point to Jesus. Um, and, and so I think that is the historical context that we, that we have to keep in mind. So here Moses goes up a mountain, Mount Sinai, to receive the law from God, the Torah, the, the Ten Commandments and the law. Now, I don't know if you know, but um, there were not just 10 laws. There were 613 laws uh, that, that was given to the nation of Israel uh, that they had to keep. Um, and we all know that all fall short of the glory. All of us uh, are unable to keep this law. They were unable to keep this law. And it is for that reason that God had to establish a new covenant. Um, but we need to understand why God gave the law um, before we can get into this greater sermon. We, we need to understand why. Why is it that he went, took this route through Israel uh, to give a law? Uh, and we can see the reason of the law in Exodus uh, chapter 19, verse 5 to 6. This is just 
before Moses received the law. God tells him why he's going to give this law. And I'll read it to you in Exodus 19 verse 5 to 6. God says to Moses, he says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. He's speaking about the nation of Israel. You will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you speak to the Israelites. And so then he gives the law. So he says, you will be a treasured possession unto me. You will be a kingdom of priests and you will be a holy nation. So God gives the law to Israel to be set apart from the nations of the world. God wanted to establish his kingdom through the nation of Israel. They failed miserably and so he, he already foresaw that and he gave us Jesus to do, to do what they could not do. But his plan was to do this through the nation of Israel, his chosen people, um, uh, to live a life that is different, that people will look at and they will establish freedom in the nations of the world. Do you remember the promise that God gave to Abram? God said to Abram, I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. All the nations will prosper because of you. And so God's plan came into fulfillment by giving the law. Because he wanted to bless all the nations through the nation of Israel. And in order for them to do that, they had to be set apart. They had to be different. They had to be a reflection of God. And so, like I said, they, they all failed um, in that. Um, so God said, okay, you failed, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to establish a new covenant. I'm going to establish a new law that's going to be slightly different. It's not, it's not going to do away with the old law. It's going to fulfill that law and it's going to establish a new law. And it's going to work differently. So this promise uh, was prophesied in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet came and he prophesied in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. Uh, Jeremiah said, he said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. So it will not be the same as the covenant that I made with Moses. It will not be like the, the law that I've established back then. Um, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant. They broke my law. They couldn't keep it. Though I was a husband to them declares the Lord. And then he says in verse 33. He says this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Now we're going to look at what that means uh, as we progress through this sermon. We're going to look at what it means when God says that he's going to put his law on our hearts and in our minds. Uh, that is very important. And he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. It is because of this last sentence that I read. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord. Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I base my foundation in saying that I will do you an injustice if I just give you my perspective on the sermon. 
And I need you to find it for yourselves. I need you to pray about it. Read it prayerfully so that the Holy Spirit can teach you. So that God can write it upon the tablet of your heart and your mind. As he has promised in Jeremiah. And I will certainly give you my perspective. And I'll study it out. And I'll share my perspective with you. But it is important that I'm not the one that teaches you. But that the Holy Spirit will teach you. Um, and so I can only point you in that direction today. Uh, and like I say, I hope that the context will stir you to do that. It certainly stirred me. Um, he, he, he also promises that in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24, God says, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. It's really important to understand that keeping God's law, you cannot do it by yourself. God makes you clean before you are to do anything. He saves you. We've talked about that multiple times. We've said that you cannot keep the law. It is impossible. You, it is your flesh waging war with your spirit. Um, the things that you want to do that you do not do, says Paul, and the things that you don't want to do, that is what you end up doing. Even Paul says that, and he says that there is this continuous struggle, and we need to understand that God clothes us with righteousness. We said that multiple times, that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works, because if it was by our works, we could boast and we could declare that we are holy by our own doing, but we can't. He needs to make us holy. Um, so he says um, this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will give, uh, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call you for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. So God says that he is going to do this thing on our behalf. He is going to write a new law, a law that is not coming in the form of tablets that he's writing it on. He's not going to give us a code. He's not going to give us a thick book of laws that says if you do this, then that will happen. He says, no, I'm going to write a new law that I'm going to engrave on your heart and on your mind. And like I said, we will, we will look at what that means um, a, a little bit later in, in not so much this message, but, but as we study through this, um, through this sermon. Um, so, um, like I said, it's no longer this written document. Um, God addresses the issues of the heart. Um, he says that um, he's going to speak about, uh, like I earlier said, the, the hyper-grace teaching, and he's going to speak about prosperity. Um, hyper-grace says there's no need for me to change. I can just merrily go around because there's grace. I can do whatever I want to do because there's grace, and I'll just always be saved, and I will just always um, be able to enter the presence of God, but less so aptly and so profoundly shared with us. It is the one with clean hands that can ascend the heel of the Lord and with a pure heart. Uh, Les spoke two weeks powerfully upon that. And that, is, that, that it comes with that surrender. So Jesus is really pulling apart the hyper-grace teaching. At the same time, he's also pulling apart the prosperity teaching. Do you know that Jesus became immensely popular uh, when, when he, he was on earth? Um, we, we can't say that today. Jesus is anything but popular. 
Christianity is mocked. Christianity is slandered. Um, Jesus is slandered. People use his name in vain all the time. They say, oh, you foolish Christians. What is this nonsense that you believe? We've got evolution and we've got the Big Bang Theory and we've got all these things. And, and all these things that you are believing in is wishy-washy. But when Jesus walked the earth, because of the signs and the wonders that he did, he became immensely popular. He became so popular that they wanted to make him king. Not the king that he is, the king of a kingdom that is not of this world, but they wanted to make him king in Israel. Uh, and we can see that in John chapter 6, um, Jesus uh, fed the 5,000. So his popular, he became popular and his popular, popularity climaxed when he fed the 5,000 people or the 5,000 men with their families, uh, which is way more than that. Uh, but Jesus became extremely popular and they, um, they said that they wanted to make him king. Uh, and so Jesus fled from them. He said, I can't become your king. I'm going to flee. Uh, and he, he went and he departed from them. And then when his disciples uh, and the crowds found him after he, he went away, um, they said to him, um, Rabbi, when did you get here? This is in John chapter 6, verse 25. He says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So they didn't even realize that he departed. They were so swept up with this popularity, with his popularity. Um, then Jesus answered them, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you for on him. God, the father has placed his seal of approval. Do you notice what Jesus said? He said, you're not looking for me to find me. You're looking to find me because I can give you bread to eat. I can fill your stomachs. The prosperity gospel is exactly that. It says, give and much more will be given to you. Seek Jesus because he is going to bless you profoundly. You are going to be rich. And if you're not rich, you lack faith. That's what the prosperity gospel is saying. And listen, I'm not saying that God does not want to prosper you. God absolutely wants to prosper you. But that is not why he came. God cares about the prosperity of your soul. That is what is important for him is the prosperity of your soul way more than the prosperity of your flesh. And God definitely wants to prosper your flesh as well. But like I say, what is important for him is the prosperity around eternity. That's why he says, do not gather treasures where moth and rust can destroy it and where it can be stolen. But, but, but gather for yourself treasures in heaven where these things cannot happen to those treasures. Because he is worried about the treasures that are eternal. That is what Jesus' treasure is about. So Jesus speaks uh, about that. So, so the law was given that we can be holy, that we can be set apart. So in the New Testament, we, we read that we are a called out people as Christians. We are holy. We are set apart. We're called a royal priesthood. Do you remember in Exodus? That's why God said he gives the law so that they can be a royal priesthood. We're already called a royal priesthood, no longer because we have to keep the law, but because he made us a royal priesthood. And because he has made us a royal priesthood, we need to live holy as he is holy. No longer to find his favor, but because we are favored. Because we want to resemble to the world how good God is. So last night, my heart was quite broken. I, I, I was um, scrolling through Instagram and I, I found one of probably my favorite worship leaders. And, and I saw that they just went through a divorce. And, and I'm not trying to profess and say that that is wrong. Nobody knows the circumstances as to why they got divorced. 
Um, but I am concerned because they are supposed to lead by example. They are to they are to show the power of the gospel. The other morning I woke up and and as I woke up, this thought filtered right through me where God says to me that my my gospel, my word is not powerless, but it is full of power. And I, and I just woke up with that thought that the gospel, the word of God is not powerless, but full of power. But when we look at the world around us, it seems powerless. When we look at the church, it seems powerless because God is no longer keeping people together. Well, I'm not saying that God is not. We don't live that anymore. We no longer live a surrendered life. We no longer live according to his word. We, we want to make the rules as we see fit. Um, and, and so there's this lack of power in the church. And my heart breaks because these people that I looked up to that are immensely great worship leaders, and they, and they still are. I'm not saying they're not, but, they, but they're not living according to the word of God. And they're not reflecting. They're unable to reflect the power. Where's the power to restore their marriage? Where's the power to keep them together? Where's the power to bring restoration and healing? Where is the power? And so we need to understand that the, the word of God is both word and deed. So this is the historical context of, of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to give you Matthew's context. So the writer uh, of the book of Matthew, Levi or Matthew, he's got his own context. Uh, and so we look at scriptural context that we just did or the historical context. And now we'll look at the book context. So in when when the manuscripts were first written, um, they, they never had like addresses, as we call them. They never had chapters and they never had verses. So concepts and ideas were separated from one another with certain statements. Um, and so before we can go to the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew chapter 5, we need to look at what precedes it to understand the context. And we need to look at Matthew chapter 4, um, verse uh, 23. It says this, Matthew 4, verse 23, and I, I really hope you've got Bibles that you can see it. I've, I, I understand that people read Bibles on their phones. Uh, that's cool and that's that's great. But there's something about having a physical Bible where you can make notes, where you can draw, underline things, where you can highlight things and where you can, you know, read it for yourself. Uh, I really want to encourage you to have a paper-based Bible, a book that you can read. Um, so in Matthew 4 verse 23, it says this, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So it says that Jesus went teaching, he went proclaiming or preaching, and he healed the sick. So preaching, teaching, healing. Preaching, teaching, healing. Those are three important things that, that Jesus did. Um, and and this, is the, this is the separator from the piece before or the scriptures before. This is where Matthew introduces a new idea. And we'll see that he concludes this in Matthew chapter 9. Um, verse uh, 35, where he, he says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. So these exact words he uses in, in Matthew 39, uh, verse 35. Uh, and he alludes to it in Matthew chapter 10. And I'll tell you now why he alludes to it. But these are the only three times he uses it in the book of Matthew. And so we know that he brings a new idea and he concludes that idea. So he brings it in chapter 4 verse 23. He concludes it in chapter 9 verse 35. This idea that sits in between. Um, that's the separator. So that is Matthew's context. 
what is amazing is, is like I said, so, so Matthew talks about Jesus' ministry and he says that Jesus' ministry is about teaching, it is about preaching, and it is about healing the sick. It's interesting that when we read the book of Matthew, we see this same pattern emerges throughout the book. Uh, we see that Matthew 5 to 7 is word. The teaching and the preaching, we'll talk about that now, it is the word. Matthew 8 to 9 is the deed or the action, the healing of the sick. Matthew 10 is the word, the teaching and the preaching. Matthew 11 to 12 is the actions. Matthew 13 is the word, the teaching and the preaching. Matthew 14 to 17 is the actions. Matthew 18 is the word. And Matthew 19 to 23 is the deed. Matthew 24 to 25 is the word, the teaching and the preaching. And right after that, the greatest deed is his crucifixion and his resurrection. So Matthew continues. His context is to show us the ministry of Jesus continuously, that it is teaching, preaching, uh, and, and then action out of that. So, like I said, Matthew alludes to this, what, what he's described in Matthew 4 and in Matthew uh, 9. And he alludes to it also in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. But here his idea changes. Here Matthew says, listen, this is my ministry or this is the ministry of Jesus. And now you need to choose for yourself whether you are going to follow the pattern of Jesus's ministry. We're all called to be in ministry. If you think that I'm not called to be a pastor, that's awesome. You're maybe not called to the fivefold ministry, but you're called to be in ministry. The moment you say yes to Jesus, you are in ministry. So if you're the CEO of a company, you are there to be in ministry. If you are a janitor, you are there to be in ministry. Everyone is called to minister. It's really important, but we need to understand how it is that we are to minister. We need to know the word, the teaching and the preaching, and we need to walk in the power of God because the gospel and the message is not powerless, but it is filled with power, dynamis power. That's why we need the Holy Spirit is to have dynamis power. Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So it's no longer this 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 idea, this philosophy, this thing that we just kind of ponder about. It is something that we preach with power, that we teach with power, and that we do with power. So I want to read to you Matthew 10 verse 1. Uh, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority. Remember, all authority under heaven and earth belongs in, to him. It says, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So God gives them the authority here. Jesus gives them the authority to do the actions. If you read the Great Commission in Matthew 28, uh, verse, verse 19 to, to 20, Jesus says this at the very end of the book. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them. To obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Here Jesus is saying, listen, you also need to follow the other side of my ministry, the teaching and the preaching. So Matthew, Matthew 18 or uh, Matthew, sorry, Matthew 28 uh, says that we are to teach and to preach. And Matthew 10 says that we are to do. We are to walk in the power of the of the Holy Spirit. So that is Matthew's context when he wrote this. Then we need to look at the sermon itself. Uh, and I want to encourage you, this is why I said to you, I want to encourage you to go read this sermon in its totality um, until I get to speak to you again. Um, so the, the sermon starts in Matthew 5 and it ends in Matthew 7. 
So you have to read Matthew 5 to 7 as one sermon. So if, if it was a Stephen Furtick sermon, you were not going to read just the introduction. You were not just going to listen to the end. You were going to listen to the sermon as a whole. And so you need to go listen to the sermon as a whole. You need to read Matthew 5 to, to 7. And then if you read further, you'll see 8 speaks about healing the sick. So that brings the action part. Um, but we need to look at the context of this sermon. So the first thing that we need to do, and I will just look at the first two verses of what Matthew 5 says. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. Remember I said that Jesus went up onto a mountain, like Moses went up onto a mountain to give the law. Um, now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. It's important. You need to understand that Jesus sat down. It's important. I'll explain to you why it's important. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So we'll just look at that to get, to get the context. Uh, and we'll look at chapter 7, the very last verses of chapter 7, to understand the context uh, of the sermon. Um, so Jesus sat down because a teacher at the time would sit and teach with authority. Uh, we see that in Matthew chapter 7, the very last verse of chapter 7. Um, it says this, when Jesus had finished saying these things, when Jesus finished his sermon... The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. We see in Matthew 23, we see in Matthew 23, I just want to get there, um, where Jesus describes the th this authority. In Matthew 23 verse 2, he says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So that sitting down is a place of authority where you teach with authority. We even see this in Luke 4 where Jesus says, um, where Jesus took up the scroll. He reads from the book of Isaiah and he says to them that this is me that, that we're speaking about. Um, and he's, they, they came with many questions and he answered them sitting down. So I just want to read this to you. Um, so in Luke chapter 4 verse 16, uh, it says this that, Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. So he was standing to read, and that's how Pharisees did it. They would stand and read the word, and then they would sit down and teach, because then it's when the authority kicks in. So he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then it says this in verse 20. Listen carefully. He says, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened onto him and he began saying to them, to, to them today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's where the authority comes in, is in him sitting down. The rabbi would sit down to speak with authority. So Jesus sat down on this mountain because he was speaking with authority. He was giving us a new law, a new way of living, um, you know, a new morality, a new virtue that we are to live by. Um, the second thing that we see in, in Matthew chapter 5 is that the disciples came to him. So Jesus, now when Jesus saw the crowds, so Jesus was seeing crowds. And then it says that the disciples came to him uh, and he began to teach them. So I've heard this many times that people preach and say, 
Oh, so so the crowds were left at the bottom of the mountain like Israel did, was at, at the time when Moses gave the law, and only Moses went up to be, the, be with God. And so here, the 12 disciples went with Jesus up onto the mountain, and he was giving them a private teaching. Well, while it may seem like that, it's not true, because if we go back to the end of the sermon, Matthew chapter 7, um, we see this, that... Um, we see, again, the last verse of chapter 7, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed. The crowds were amazed at his teaching. So the disciples went with him, but the crowds were amazed. And so there's a distinction between the crowds that stayed behind and the crowds that went with Jesus. So here Jesus is saying, listen, if you are willing to come to me, if you are willing to take the posture of a student, and we will talk about the posture of the student, you are a disciple. Do you want me to prove it to, to you? It says in Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus was speaking to the crowds that were following. Because remember, I said many people follow Jesus to see what they can get from him, right? So there's a lot of followers that follow Jesus. But in Matthew uh, or in Luke chapter 14, verse 25, Jesus says this or, or Luke writes this and then Jesus says something. It says large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. So yes, you can be my follower. You can gain from me what you can gain from me, but you're not my disciple. Unless you are willing to take the posture of a student, unless you are to place me as the highest authority in your life, you cannot be my disciple. He says this, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So this is amazing because Jesus says that if you are willing to come to him, if you are willing to go up to the mountain and take this humble, humble um, stance to learn from him because he's the teacher who speaks with authority, you are called a disciple. We see this in John chapter 15. He says, if you remain in me, then you will bear much fruit. So we are to remain in him to be a disciple. So I really hope that stirs you that the motive is for you to be a disciple. Um, that really is important. So it is the crowds that followed Jesus up to the mountainside that were his disciples. Yes, Jesus had his small little congregation of 12 people, his disciples who became the apostles. But we also see that Jesus gives authority to 72 later. So Jesus had many more disciples than those who truly believed him, who were truly being taught by him. And he places his leadership on 12 to, to take it further. It's very much the same way in church today. We, we've got a small portion of people not because they're more important but we can't split ourselves into a million parts but so we disciple certain people and those people disciple other people and those people disciple other people that is the way that the gospel spreads that's the way that discipleship happens because one person cannot disciple the whole world it's it's not possible and that's not because one is less important than the other it's just the way it it has to work because it's the only way i can give you all of myself um and and so and so it is important that that we become disciples, that we can disciple others. Um, but in order for us to disciple, we need to also live by the standards of his word. Um, so now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to, into a mountainside and sat down. So he sat down with authority and his disciples came to him. Not just the 12, but also people from the crowd went up onto the mountainside with Jesus to be taught by him. And then it says, and he began to teach them. So here is where Jesus begins to teach them. Uh, and the last thing that I want to say, and I want to conclude with this, is that when we read this sermon, 
you know that every great speaker, I, I don't know if you remember, I've got sometimes these flashbacks of Afrikaans um, homework in school where we had to prepare an oral um, presentation or we, we had to give an oral uh, speech. Uh, and, and the way that any oral speech works is you have an introduction and you have a summary and a body in the middle. The same with essays. You've got an introduction and you've got a summary, right? Um, it's important for us to understand the context uh, by by understanding the introduction, which we've just spent some time on. Uh, and then we need to look at the summary to understand what it is that Jesus teaches and why his teaching is important. Uh, so with this sermon, it's important that we kind of start with the end in mind. Uh, so I want you, want you to go to Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 24. Jesus says this, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain comes, came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house and fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. So what, what is this word, these words of Jesus that he says that we are to put into practice? It is the Sermon on the Mount. It is from chapter 5 to chapter 7. It is everything that he says. And we'll spend some time on it. And, and I'll show you that you cannot do it by your own strength. And I'll show you that it is not by, by your doing, but it is by him transforming you. Uh, it is you taking the posture of a student. We'll, we'll go through that. But I want to give you the opportunity to go prayerfully and read this. And to say, God, if this is your word, then make it a reality in my life. Um, so that you can be like a wise man or woman uh, who builds their house on the rock. I just want to share this one last thing with you uh, in, in chapter 5, um, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. We so often say that the law is no more applicable. That's not completely true. Yes, we're no longer under the law that we need to perform to get his favor. That is done away with, that is fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus said, you cannot fulfill this, so I will fulfill this. And then I'm going to give you a new law, one that you can fulfill. Um, so he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, until the end of age, right, is accomplished. Therefore, so this is important. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of God. Or kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so I understand the weightiness of speaking on this topic. Because if I were to teach you what it doesn't say, I will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And that is a weighty, weighty responsibility. Um, so, so we cannot take away from what Jesus is saying. And, and again, I'm not trying to tell you here that there are certain laws that you need to live by. You are to be transformed by Jesus Christ. That is what I'm talking about. Uh, and we'll go through it, and, and I'll show you how he does that. So, um, this is not so much a sermon. This is more a bit of theology. This is more about a, a little bit of, uh, um, you know, context that you can understand what is happening in the scripture. 
and why the scripture is important so that you can read it out of that frame of mind, out of that lens. You can read it for yourself to understand what Jesus is saying, why he's saying it. Okay, now I need to look at what he's saying. Um, and so I really hope that will help you. I hope that that will stir a desire in your heart to go read this day after day. I'm, I've now been reading this for two weeks and I've, I've just scratched the surface. Um, you know, like I said, we listen to great preachers and we, we kind of delve deep into their sermons. This is the one. This is the one that you need to delve deep into. This is the one that you need to study out. This is the one that you need to pray about that the Holy Spirit will make uh, alive in you. Um, so, so that is my message this morning. I, I don't want to take it any further. I don't want to share the message with you I, today. Uh, I, I want to be able to go systematically and slowly through it. So today the message is greatest preacher, Jesus Christ, who is a fulfillment of the promises of God in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Greatest preacher, greatest teacher, and he's preaching the greatest sermon. And this will be just the foundational part one uh, of that. Um, God bless you. I, I really hope that like I say, you will be rooted in his word. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that this will just be a preparation of the soil. Holy Spirit, that you will now come and that you will plow the soil, that you will prepare it, that you will enrich it with your presence, that when they read the word of God, when they read your sermon, that the seeds will be planted to grow up and to produce mature Christians, mature children, mature disciples, those who are fully rooted in you, that are not swayed by the wind and tossed around like a wave. Father, I pray here that we will understand that we are called a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that we are set apart not by our doing, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. That you are the one that clothes us with righteousness, with holiness, that you present us before the Father, pure and holy and above reproach. Jesus, we declare that you are the way, the truth and the life, and that no one, absolutely no one can come to the Father except through you. There is no other way. There's not multiple ways to you. You are the door. You are the narrow way. And few is it that find life. Few is it that find the narrow way and find life. Your words is broad is the way and many goes down this broad way that leads to destruction. So Lord, this morning we are speaking about Jesus. We are speaking about the narrow way. I pray that you will come and show us that you will bring revelation to our hearts and in that, that there will be power, power to set people free, power to set people free from depression and anxiety, Lord, power to set people free from, from the, the pressures of this world so that they can run fully to you, fully after you, that they can declare the gospel, not just in word, but also in deed. I pray that signs and wonders will follow those who believe. I pray, Father, that your word will be, will be established in power. Your word is not just a word. It is not a philosophy. It is filled with power. That is your promise, God. It is your idea. It's not our idea. It is your good will to work it out that way. We give you all the praise and glory. Amen.